Reading this morning is taken from Titus chapter 2 and we're reading from verse 11 through to verse 15. So would you turn your Bibles please to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his words. The book, The Mutiny on the Bounty, is one of the best-known and best-loved novels of all time. It's actually based on a true story, and it has been made into two separate feature films. In 1787, Captain Bly had left Tahiti and was sailing home to England with his crew. However, one morning he woke up to discover that he was facing a mutiny led by Fletcher Christian. They put Captain Bly and his loyal officers into a lifeboat and sailed on to the unknown island of Pitcairn. They took what they could from the ship before setting uh, fire to it so that it wouldn't be discovered by passing vessels. They had taken some of the native women from Tahiti um, to this previously uninhabited island to set up a new community with no government to bother them and no laws to restrict them. Then they let loose with all their passions because they were free to do whatever they wanted. Ten years of hell followed. From native plants they were able to brew alcohol and the men spent days, even weeks at a time, under uh, the influence of that alcohol. They became like animals uh, in their behaviour, stealing one another's uh, possessions, stealing one another's wives and abusing one another's daughters. They were fighting amongst themselves all the time. Eventually there were only two mutineers left, Edward J., an elderly man, and Alexander Smith, the youngest member of the crew. They persisted in their wayward behaviour, so much so that the women that they had taken with them rebelled and barricaded themselves into one part of the island. They wanted nothing to do with these wretches of men. One day, Smith found the Bible from the bounty, but he, he couldn't read. And he asked the other man, the older man, Edward Young, to teach him how to read from it. They started at Genesis, and when Young died, uh, Smith continued uh, to read on. When he came to the New Testament, something remarkable happened. He wrote, I had been living like an animal for years and suddenly it was as if the doors flew open in my soul and I saw the light. I met God. The children were the first to notice the change. They no longer feared this man and ran from him. They were actually drawn to him. Interestingly enough, 18 years after the original mutiny, a ship from Boston came across Pitcairn Island. When they came ashore, they were amazed to find a community of godly people. When the captain got back to Boston, he reported that never had he in all his travels met a community who were so good and gracious. It had worked. God took a community that was ravaged by sin and depravity and transformed it 
by the power of his word and by the power of the gospel. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel leads uh, to godliness. And what happened on the island of Pitcairn also happened on the island of Crete. Remember we noticed in chapter 1 and verse 12 that Cretans were uh, characterized in their own literature as liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. But they were transformed by the gospel, by the word of God into men who were worthy of respect, into women who were reverent, into young married women who loved their husbands and children, into young men who lived self-controlled lives and into slaves who please their masters. Now in this last section of Titus 2, Paul summarizes that transforming power of the gospel, that sanctifying effect of the gospel in their lives. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. This is why the older men who had a lifetime of sin ingrained into them, this is why they had changed, why slaves known for their insurrection and insubordination uh, had become submissive because the grace of God had appeared to them and transformed them in bringing them to faith, to the young men, to the older men, to the young women, to the older women, to slaves, to uh, all who came in contact and believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the salvation that, uh, that Titus preached, that Paul preached, had ethical and moral implications. It taught how people should live and the life that they lived should be a life that was pleasing to God. Now I want you to notice three things this morning. I want you, first of all, to notice the description that Paul gives of godliness. Look at verse uh, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Paul tells Titus that godliness is a two-sided coin. Negatively, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion, and positively, that we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This is the effect that the gospel has, that salvation brings, on those who hear it and embrace it. That there are moral implications to our salvation and our faith. We are not free to do as we please, to carry on uh, in sin, to live as we lived before. Because the grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Now let's look at those two things. First of all, the turning from sinfulness on the one hand, and the turning to holiness on the other. Paul says, first of all, we must turn from sinfulness. Look at verse 12, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We as Christians are not immune to temptations, but when faced with them, we must renounce them. We make a moral choice. The NIV, I think, is more direct in its translation. Uh, It says, it teaches us to say no. 
we make a deliberate negative response to those temptations. Young people who have professed as children and they're going to school and all their uh, school friends uh, just get on well together. Uh, They have lots of non-Christian friends. But as they get into their mid-teens, they begin to face moral choices that they never faced before. Their friends are beginning to go places and do things that they didn't do when they were younger. And that Christian young person faces a choice. Am I going to say no to ungodliness? Am I prepared to be different, to be distinctive, to resist the pull and the pressure of my friends to conform to an ungodly and a worldly pattern of behaviour? Well, the gospel teaches them to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And here is a young man uh, growing up and suddenly as a teenager he uh, finds himself facing temptations that he uh, never faced before. His face is erupting, his hormones are raging and sexually he is struggling. And he finds himself almost compulsively drawn to pornography, to pornographic images on his phone or on his computer. But as he reaches out for that uh, phone, as he clicks with the mouse on that particular site, the gospel teaches him to say no to ungodliness and worldly uh, passions. Or here is a, a young girl and she's growing up in the church and there are no Christian boys her age in that church. And she would desperately love the companionship of a boyfriend. She longs to be married and have a family of her own. But the Bible says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And she knows that there is this uh, prohibition in the word of God in her dating and eventually marrying a non-Christian. But... As time goes on, her standards drop and she finds herself tempted to date that boy at work or at school who has taken a shine to her. But the gospel, the salvation, teaches her to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. And there's an older man, his family have grown up. And he's still wrestling with the very same temptations that he wrestled with as a teenager. And in work, he becomes conscious that he's getting on rather well with a female colleague. And he's quite flattered and he's tempted. But the gospel teaches him to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And here's a woman and her family have grown up too and They have moved away and she finds more time on her hands. Her husband seems to take her for granted these days. He treats her no better than a domestic appliance, a a machine in a skirt. He's not sensitive to her needs. He's overcritical of her appearance. He's harsh in her expectations. And she finds herself living more independently. And she's quite flattered. By the attention that she's getting from a younger admirer. But the salvation teaches her to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We've got to say no. But it's not just saying no. It's, it's turning as well to holiness. That as verse uh, 12 continues that we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions but we live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. 
That we live self-controlled lives. Soberly, says the authorised version. That the Christian masters himself. He is in control of his appetite sexually, physically, emotionally. He doesn't, after um, witnessing to others, be, uh, want to be disqualified from the prize. As Paul said, I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Upright, the authorised version says righteously. The word means straight. He lives in harmony with the word of God. He's straight as a die, no deviation, no diversions, no declensions. Godly, the opposite of ungodliness, having a reverence for God, for his name, for his word, and for his work. Now I want to ask you this morning, are you still saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions? And are you living a self-controlled, upright and godly life? The Christian life is a life of moral choices. You've got to turn from sin And you've got to turn from holiness. You've got to say no to unrighteousness, uh, ungodliness and worldly passions. And say yes to self-controlled uprightness and godliness. You don't sleep uh, on your way to heaven. You're not carried to heaven, as the hymn writer says, on flowery beds of ease. You have to struggle and fight for the life that is in with you. Writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 12 and verse 14 urges his readers to pursue holiness. And that's an active word. The NIV translates it, make every effort to be holy. The ESV says, strive for holiness, that you fight for holiness, that you don't give up and you don't give in, but you you battle spiritually to your dying breath. That's the description of holiness, to say, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright and godly life. That's the description of godliness. We turn from sinfulness and we turn to holiness. The second thing I want you to notice this morning are the incentives to godliness. In the passage, Paul points to two great events that one that happened in the past and one that has yet to happen will happen in the future as incentives to godliness. Now he calls these two events epiphanies in the original language. Now an epiphany is simply a revelation, an appearing. It was used in classical uh, Greek of of dawn, the, the sun that's hidden rises over the horizon. It was even used of a, an enemy who was hiding in an ambush who suddenly would reveal himself. It was something that was hidden previously, but now has come into view. Now in the passage, Paul uses the word twice, one to refer to Christ's first coming and the other to refer to Christ's second coming. You have it there in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, that's the word epiphany, bringing salvation to all people. It's something that was hidden and something that has now been revealed. Then you get it again in verse 13. uh, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, that's the word, the epiphany of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the uh, epiphany again. 
And I think Paul deliberately uses the same word to provide two great incentives for godly living. Why should I say no to uh, ungodliness and to uh, worldly passions? And why should I say yes and live a self-controlled, upright and godly life? Because of the epiphany of grace and because of uh, the epiphany of glory. That's why, that's my motivation, because of what has happened in the past and because of what will happen in the future. Let's look at those two things. First of all, the epiphany, the appearance, the revelation of grace in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, of course, grace did not come into existence when Christ came. God has always been gracious. But that grace which was hidden to some degree, at least in the Old Testament, has been fully revealed in the New Testament. So uh, John, uh, in verse 14 of chapter 1 of his gospel, says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That grace was revealed in uh, greater measure in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich, that grace is revealed. Look, Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You see, grace in the Old Testament was largely uh, restricted to one group of people, the Jews, and to one uh, area in the world. But now, through Jesus Christ, this grace has been revealed. It has been given to all people. Well, what is grace? Well, let me give you an illustration. A farmer went to see his bank manager, and he says, I have some good news and some bad news for you. Uh, Which do you want first? And the bank manager says, well, you better give me the bad news first. Well, said the farmer, I've had such a bad year with the weather and all of that. He says, I can't pay the mortgage uh, on the farm. The bank manager looked distraught. In fact, he says, the loan for the machinery, I can't pay either. And the advance I took out for the seed, I haven't the money to pay that. "That's, That's terrible, said the bank manager. What's the good news? Well, the good news, said the farmer, is that I still want to do business with you. Now, if we reverse the subjects in that story, God's grace is seen that in spite of our total spiritual bankruptcy, God still wants to do business with us. That grace is the demerited favour of God. That grace is getting what you don't deserve. That God in his grace gives us what we don't deserve. And that grace appeared when he appeared in our world, when he went to the cross, when he died the death that he died. We deserve none of it. We deserve what he endured. We deserve to be consumed in the never dying wrath of God. And yet in Jesus Christ we have grace, amazing grace, astounding grace, mind-boggling grace, mind-stretching grace. And that epiphany of grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. 
How can I resist him? How can I defy him? How can I deny him? How can I disgrace him? My sins were nailed to that cross. How can I continue in in those same sins any longer since he has paid the price for that sin? And if you're in the dilemma this morning and you're finding it hard to say no, to ungodliness and worldly passion. Go to the cross. Stand before the cross and realize that it was your sin that was, that is the root cause of all his suffering, that every transgression and all disobedience uh, was paid for there. How can you continue to live uh, in a worldly way, indulging worldly passions? And and living in a way that uh, is ungodly. It was your sin that crucified the Lord of glory. How can you love that sin? Pamper that sin? Hold on to that sin? Does the grace of God not compel you to separate from that sin? That's the first incentive for godliness. An epiphany of grace. Second incentive is an epiphany of glory. Grace has appeared in the past. Glory will appear in the future. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearance of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He appeared briefly on the stage of history, but disappeared quickly. But one day he will reappear permanently. And that is the Christian's great hope. That is what the Christian looks for and longs for. That in the words of the angel uh, to the disciples when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Notice Paul speaks of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Now, the authorised version splits that and it talks about the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. But rather, it should read, Jesus is the great God and Saviour. In other words, when Jesus comes, it will be altogether different uh, in the way that he came the first time. When he came to Bethlehem, He came incognito. His glory, his divinity, his deity was veiled beneath his humanity. He looked like an ordinary baby. He looked like an ordinary child. He looked like an ordinary teenager. He looked like an ordinary man. But when he comes, he will come with all the trappings of glory and divinity, majesty, and royalty, he will come in the glory of the great God as our great God and Savior. And what a day that will be when all our tears will be wiped away and all our struggles will be over and all our battles will be won. And one glimpse of the blessed face of the Lord Jesus, and we will fall at his feet, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And that's our hope, our great hope, the epiphany of glory. And that epiphany of glory brings moral implications. First John 3 and verse 3 says, Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. 
that because we look forward to that epiphany of glory, we live a life that is pleasing to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. John Hooper, a bishop in the Church of England, was martyred in 1555. Um, He was brought back to, to Gloucester to be burned at the stake and uh, a friend uh, accompanying him out to the place where he was to be martyred. And uh, he urged him to renounce his faith and uh, save his life. And so he said to Hooper, he says, life is sweet and death is bitter. To which John Hooper replied, eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. The Christian is someone who looks beyond this life to the life that is to come and in the light of the glorious appearance of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, he moderates, he, he moulds his behaviour in the light of that appearance. So here are two great incentives for godly living. The epiphany of grace, the appearing of grace, and the epiphany of glory, the appearing of glory. One looking back and one looking forward. Imagine for a moment that you were out swimming and you got into trouble in the sea. Uh, your swimming isn't, isn't good and you're at risk of drowning and someone dives in, a lifeguard, to save you. And he, he, he pulls you to a pontoon, to a little platform, uh, saves you and, and says, look, wait on this platform, this raft, until I come back for you. I have, I have others to save. Well, the last thing that you're going to do is, oh, that's fine. While you're away, I'll go for a swim. You're not going to go back into the water uh, from which you have been rescued. You stay on that raft until he comes for the final rescue and takes you back to shore. Now that's what Paul is saying. He has saved you by his grace. Why go back into sin? He has asked you to wait for glory. Why go back into the world? It's unthinkable. It's incongruous. It's inconsistent that a Christian wants to go back into that from which he has been saved. It's like the Israelites saying, Uh, to Moses that they wanted to go back to Egypt. See, here then are the incentives for godliness. The epiphany of grace, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then the epiphany of glory, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So we have the description of godliness, the incentives to godliness, And then finally, the importance for godliness. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself to redeem us. Now we've looked at that word recently and redeem means to buy back at a price. And the price of our redemption was the blood of God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes and says, you were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we have been redeemed. 
But also in that word is the idea of being set free. So in the Old Testament, God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. They were set free from the bondage that they had endured. And then in the New Testament, the word was used of the slave market, where the slave is set free when a payment is made. So in today's language, you redeem a mortgage. When you redeem that mortgage, the deeds are released. The deeds are set free. When you, If you ever have to leave goods into a pawnbroker, when you pay the price of redemption, those goods are set free. They're handed over to you. So there's this uh, added meaning uh, of liberation, of, of setting free, that the price has been paid in order to liberate us. Now look at verse 14 again. Who gave himself to redeem us from, now that's a crucial word in the text, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That our great Redeemer comes and he pays the price of our redemption, but he sets us free from sin. That we were once chained to sin, we were once bound to sin, all we could do was sin. But in this redemption, we are uh, set free from the shackles of sin. That's what Wesley meant when he said he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Notice our our text again. We're told there that, that he has redeemed us from, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That we are liberated from the shackles of sin and now we can live a life uh, that is, is pleasing to him. We have been set free from lawlessness and now we can be zealous for good works. That we can give ourselves to good works, that we can live that life that is pleasing to God. We can uh, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions And we can say yes to uh, living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. That actually this saying no to ungodliness and this embracing of godliness is the mark of saving faith. It's a consequence of our redemption. That it's living fish that swim upstream, that swim against the tide. It's dead fish that are, go with the flow and are carried downstream uh, with, the, the, with the water. That actually this, this struggle for sin, this struggle against sin, this battle for godliness is evidence of saving faith. That God in our redemption loosens us from those worldly passions, from lawlessness, and makes us a people created for good works, as Paul tells the Ephesians. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast that we are his workmanship created for good works that God has has prepared in advance for us to do. So you see this this saying no to ungodliness and this saying yes to 
living a self-controlled, upright and godly life is the very evidence of redemption, the very evidence of saving faith because he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous, who give themselves to good work. And that's so crucially important that the person who lives uh, indifferently to the um, demands of Scripture, who conforms his life to the pattern of the world, that person has no grounds of assurance whatsoever. Because the very battle and resistance that we display when facing temptation is in itself evidence of true saving faith. You know, sometimes the devil comes, who's the great accuser of the, 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 the brethren, and he tells us that we can't be Christians because of these struggles with sin. But that very struggle is the evidence of our redemption. That very battle is evidence of our salvation. And that's what makes godliness so important, that godliness is the fruit of faith, that the the root of faith manifests itself in the fruit of godliness. At the entrance to the cathedral in Ludbeck in Germany, uh, we read these words. Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and you live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and you seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. That godliness is actually the evidence of our redemption is the evidence of saving faith. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness to make us a people who are zealous for good works. The characteristics of godliness, a turning from sinfulness, a turning to godliness. The incentives to godliness, the epiphany of grace and the epiphany of glory. The importance of godliness, it's actually a mark an evidence of our redemption, of our salvation. Amen.